The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Reviving the BTK Target in MCL, Recalibrating the Treatment Sequence with Non-Covalent BTK Inhibitors in Relapsed Refractory Disease. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GYD 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and welcome to Reviving the BTK Target in Mantle Cell Lymphoma. I'm Dr. Nirav Shah from the Medical College of Wisconsin, and I'm pleased to welcome my colleague, Dr. Toby Ayer from Oxford University Hospitals in the United Kingdom. Tonight, we're going to explore new developments with BTK inhibitor therapy in mantle cell lymphoma and the role of non-covalent options in relapsed refractory disease. So what does a frontline setting for mantle cell lymphoma look like? Well, treatment algorithms are rapidly evolving, and BTK inhibitors are now moving into the frontline setting. Uh, data from the TRIANGLE study, which we'll discuss in a little bit more in detail, involves the addition of ibrutinib to a chemoimmunotherapy induction, um, and then also uh, giving ibrutinib as part of maintenance with rituximab. Uh, this approach was studied in a very large randomized controlled trial, uh, comparing it to a standard platform without BTK and including autologous transplant, and then a third arm where only ibrutinib was added and no transplant was offered. And what was learned in that study is that those patients who got ibrutinib as part of induction and maintenance had improved disease-free survival uh, compared to the patients that did not get early BTK exposure. Now, here in the United States, uh, due to changes in label, uh, the NCCN guidelines have sort of a category 2A for ibrutinib as part of the triangle regimen and category 2B for consideration for the second generation drugs such as acalabrutinib and zanabrutinib to be used in the similar triangle-based approach. So uh, for patients who don't get covalent BTK inhibitors as part of the frontline regimen, which to date is probably the majority of patients, it is clear based on data that covalent BTK inhibitors are part of the second and later lines of therapy. Here in the United States, the two approved drugs are acalabrutinib and zanabrutinib, and there are alternative agents that we can consider. For patients who have failed covalent BTK inhibitors, there is a new drug, a non-covalent BTK inhibitor called pertubrutinib, which is now an FDA-approved option, and there's also cell therapy treatments such as brexacaptogene, otolucel, which is a CD19-based CAR T-cell therapy. Although uh, BTK inhibitors are a step forward in mantle cell lymphoma, it's clear that we need to do more for patients in later-line care. This is looking at the different treatment regimens that uh, are being utilized based on claims data in the United States from 2015 to 2021. And you can see here the different regimens that are sort of being used in the frontline setting, which is often chemoimmunotherapeutic regimens, such as bendamustine or RCHOP-based-like regimens. Um, and then what happens in second and later lines of therapy? What's concerning here is obviously that for patients who get beyond second line, um, that many of those patients actually don't receive any further care. And so this demonstrates an unmet clinical need for mantle cell lymphoma in the third line or later. What do we know from real-world data? Well, we know that while BTK inhibitors are incredibly effective in the relapse setting for mantle cell lymphoma, when patients progress on BTKs, it's almost like falling off a cliff. Uh, historically, outcomes have been very poor. So these are some retrospective analyses looking at what happened to those patients 
after progression on drugs like ibrutinib or covalent inhibitors. You can see here on the on the curve, on the Kaplan-Meier curve on the left, that the overall survival was a median of just 1.4 months, uh, demonstrating that really these patients do quite poorly. Uh, the graph here on the right looked at a regimen called RBAC and found that if patients were candidates for uh, this chemotherapy regimen, that they did better than those patients who received alternative systemic therapies. Overall, though, these data clearly show the unmet need for patients who progress after covalent BTK inhibitors. So what are our goals for today? Uh, first, we want to enhance the knowledge on mechanistic rationale and evidence supporting non-covalent BTK inhibitors in mantle cell lymphoma. We want to give you the skills you need to utilize uh, new pathways and treatments such as non-covalent BTK inhibitors as part of a sequential approach in relapse refractory mantle cell lymphoma. And lastly, augment your ability to address practical aspects of MCL care, including providing education to patients and, and thinking about the management of BTK inhibitor-related toxicities. So uh, let's get started. So jump-starting efficacy with non-covalent BTK inhibitors. And this is sort of BTK 101, the mechanistic underpinning of modern sequential care. So let's take a look at what is the regulatory status of BTK inhibitors, uh, both in the United States and abroad in, the, in Europe. And you can see here that there actually is a different pattern of approval um, between these different uh, regions of the world. So here in the United States, the two FDA-approved drugs uh, in terms of covalent inhibitors, uh, which are approved after one line of prior therapy, include the drugs acalabrutinib and zanabrutinib. Now, neither of these drugs are currently approved in the European Union. In the European Union, ibrutinib remains a covalent BTK inhibitor of choice. Uh, this drug was actually withdrawn from the United States uh, as a result of, of recent data from other clinical trials. And lastly, what's also different in the United States is uh, the approval of pertubrutinib, which is approved after two or more lines of therapy, including a BTK inhibitor. I would simply note that there are practice aids available uh, for you to get a better understanding of the regulatory status of these drugs uh, in mantle cell lymphoma. So what are the differences between all of these BTK inhibitors? So ibrutinib was first. And it was a revolutionary drug when it was first developed, really a first-in-class agent inhibiting BTK. However, uh, it wasn't the cleanest drug as it also inhibited other kinases. And it's felt that sometimes the inhibition of these other off-target kinases might actually be contributing to the side effect profile seen with ibrutinib. This really led to the development and, and to fulfill the need of a cleaner drug. And so acalabrutinib and zanabrutinib were developed as more selective covalent BTK inhibitors with less off-target kinase inhib inhibition. These drugs um, are sort of called second-generation drugs um, and have also been studied extensively in diseases like mantle cell lymphoma. More recently, uh, there's a new class of drugs called non-covalent inhibitors, so unlike ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and zanabrutinib, which all mechanistically work the same, same way as irreversible inhibitors of the BTK enzyme, uh, drugs like nemtabrutinib and pertabrutinib are reversible inhibitors. Uh, they are more selective, and as a result, uh, should have less off-target toxicities. 
So why does toxicity matter with covalent BTK inhibitors? Because other than disease progression, toxicity is a major reason for discontinuation of these agents. So this, again, was looking at a U.S. oncology network database, and it looked at 159 patients with mantle cell lymphoma who were treated with ibrutinib. Unfortunately, almost the majority of the patients, 84%, ended up discontinuing the drugs. And other than disease response, the next most common cause was toxicity. So if you're having difficulty tolerating the drug, you're not going to be able to take it on a regular basis. Resistance remains a problem, and so despite covalent inhibitors having incredible efficacy for mantle cell lymphoma, most patients at some point in their life will develop resistance to these drugs. Now, the resistance mechanisms uh, for BTK inhibitors in mantle cell lymphoma is not as well understood as it is in other diseases like CLL. However, there's both a primary resistance and a secondary resistance that is felt to be related to mutations that occur um, either downstream or at the BTK enzyme. However, um, as a result of these mutations and resistance mechanisms, new drugs have been developed to overcome some of these uh, current limitations. At this point, uh, we're going to do a brief animation that explores how BTK resistance uh, occurs and how a non-covalent BTK inhibitor may overcome the resistance mutations that occur uh, with covalent BTK inhibitors. Let's now take a closer look at this specific enzyme, BTK, and its role in B-cell malignancies. In malignant B-cells, BTK can become overexpressed. With overexpression, it becomes persistently activated, initiating a signal cascade. This leads to proliferation of the malignant cell, allowing it to thrive, resulting in patients having disease progression. Covalent BTK inhibitors such as ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and zanabrutinib are dependent on binding the BTK site at a specific location in an irreversible fashion, resulting in inhibition of BTK activation. These drugs are incredibly effective for patients with B-cell malignancies, but unfortunately resistance can occur. The most common resistance pathway identified is a mutation specifically at the C481 site, which makes it difficult for covalent BTK inhibitors to bind. This is the most common mechanism for covalent BTKI resistance in CLL and affects all agents in this class. While resistance mechanisms in mantle cell lymphoma are less well described, we know that they can limit the binding efficiency of covalent BTK inhibitors as well. Decreased binding efficiency results in resistance, which allows for increased BTK enzymatic activity and ultimately for patients, disease progression. A new class of drugs called non-covalent BTK inhibitors has been shown to be effective even in patients who have disease progression and known resistant mutations after a covalent BTK inhibitor. One such agent is a drug called pertubrutinib, which is now FDA-approved in relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma. This drug blocks the ATP binding site of BTK in a reversible, non-covalent fashion, which represents a different mechanism of action, and by doing so, is able to overcome the resistant mutations that have occurred in patients who have progressed on a covalent BTK inhibitor. 
Well, I hope this information was a nice introduction to uh, covalent BTK inhibitors and some of the resistance mechanisms that are occurring. I'd now like to bring back my colleague, Dr. Toby Ayer, who will lead the next portion of this presentation. Toby. Thank you very much, Nirav, for that excellent introduction. And um, it's my pleasure to now speak on um, beyond treatment resistance with non-covalent BTK inhibitors, so a focus on um, these new drugs in development, particularly pertubrutinib. So as Nirav has talked about, there are three covalent BTK inhibitors that have been developed in relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma with their, with their use predominantly in the second-line space. Um, here are the top-line uh, data from the pivotal studies, the phase two studies of ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and xanabrutinib. You can see between 86 and 124 patients in these studies. The highest risk group was the ibrutinib study, uh, the initial trial that was performed with BTK inhibitors was a patient population that had been he most heavily pretreated. And you can see the median age of the populations between 60 and 70 and response rates somewhere between 68 and 84% with CR rates slightly variable with different um, different modalities of um, radiological assessment, um, but still CRs seen across all those studies and progression-free survival occurring um, at a median of between 14 and 22 months. So all of these agents are active and are in active investigation in the frontline setting as Nirav has already spoken about um, the triangle study has been introduced into the NCCN guidelines. We haven't all the readouts from the clinical trial to date, but we certainly know up until now that the addition of uh, ibrutinib improves progression-free survival and failure-free survival, the primary endpoint of the study, um, at three years. Um, there's additional analysis to state that, that using autologous stem cell transplant as consolidation was not superior to using ibrutinib in induction without the autologous stem cell transplant, suggesting that it may be safe to drop an autologous stem cell transplant if ibrutinib um, is used in induction and then as maintenance for two years. Now, this is somewhat different to the SHINE trial um, in, in, in its results. Ibrutinib uh, was uh, introduced in induction and as maintenance with bendamustin rituximab in induction and then rituximab maintenance. And although this improved the progression-free survival uh, over uh, bendamustin rituximab followed by rituximab maintenance, there was a substantial increase in toxicity in the BR plus I arm um, with no overall survival benefit. And so um, the US guidelines on the basis of these two studies have introduced um, ibrutinib in combination with chemotherapy, as mentioned, um, in a triangle-like regime, but also included acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib as options in that re regime with the suggestion that these second-generation VTK inhibitors may well be better tolerated um, in this combination. An important ongoing study, which is much like the SHINE trial in its design, is a study called the ECHO trial, um, where acalabrutinib is introduced in combination with bendamustin rituximab in untreated mantle cell lymphoma patients. And again, the control arm in that trial is bendamustin rituximab. There's maintenance rituximab in both arms, and we await the readout of that study with great interest. Other ongoing clinical trials are moving covalent BTK inhibitors in the frontline setting and are studying them uh, with rational combinations. And here are a few select examples of this. So the OASIS-1 study was a French and UK trial, um, a relatively small cohort of frontline treated patients combining a CD20 antibody abinutuzumab with ibrutinib 
and the BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax. Now, this combination was well tolerated in untreated patients, demonstrating a sustained disease control with a four-year progression-free survival of 80%, and suggesting that this combination should be studied further. And the OASIS-2 study is actually a randomized clinical trial of CD20 antibody, ibrutinib, and venetoclax versus CD20 antibody and ibrutinib. So testing the question, does the addition of an active agent like venetoclax with known synergy with BTK inhibitors um, improve outcome in frontline mantle cell lymphoma patients? We've seen a small cohort of patients treated with the R-squared regime, so lenalidomide rituximab, plus the addition of acalabrutinib, where um, it is highly active in uh, previously untreated mantle cell lymphoma patients with very high response rates and high rates of MRD negativity. And so this regime is being investigated further. And then there are two other very important studies which are waiting readout from. The Mangrove study, which is using xanabrutin plus rituximab in the experimental arm, and the Enrich study, which is using uh, ibrutin plus rituximab in the experimental arm. They're both being compared to uh, immunochemotherapy. So really testing the paradigm of whether we can shift away from immunochemotherapy in transplant ineligible patients in those two studies. Um, so again, there are awaiting readout. We should see the enriched results in 2024. So the question here is, um, what do we do when BTK inhibitors are moving further up the treatment pathway? And uh, it's natural to think that most patients will be exposed to covalent BTK inhibitors, either in the frontline setting or in the relapse refractory setting. And the NCCN guidelines have recommended non-covalent BTK inhibitors and CAR T cell therapy in the third line setting and beyond in patients who've received a prior covalent BTK. Now, of course, open questions about what to use at different time points, depending on where the covalent BTK inhibitor is used, but certainly these two treatment options should be considered in patients progressing through a covalent BTK inhibitor. So what's the evidence supporting non-covalent BTK inhibitors where resistant to covalent BTK inhibitors is likely to be present? So this is where we want to focus on the Bruin clinical trial. Now, Nirav introduced pertabrutinib to us earlier as a highly selective, non-covalent, reversible BTK inhibitor. You can see the kinome map demonstrating its selectivity here. Um, this schema demonstrates the phase one, two um, patient cohorts within the Bruin trial. And you can see here most recently we've had a primary analysis set, so a pivotal data set of 90 previously covalent BTK exposed mantle cell lymphoma patients treated with pertabrutinib, um, and also a smaller cohort who are covalent BTK naive as well. Now I'm going to focus on the previously treated patients. Initially, you can see here a waterfall plot of all patients uh, treated um, in this cohort with a long follow-up you can see that the overall response rate was nearly 58%, the complete remission rate 18%, and responses were seen in patients who progressed on the prior covalent BTK inhibitor and also in patients who stopped because of toxicity or other reasons. Now, there were 14 patients who were covalent BTK naive. Those patients had very high response rates with high complete remission rates. This resulted in a progression. The previously covalent BTK exposed patients um, responded, as you can see, with a response rate of 58%. And this resulted 
in a progression-free survival of 7.36 months, as noted here, with um, overall, an overall survival 18-month estimate at 60, just under 60%. And after pertubrutinib, just under 19% of patients were able to receive subsequent CAR T-cell therapy. Now, considering the clinical context here of patients in the third line and treatment beyond setting and the data that NIRAV has already showed, an 18-month uh, overall survival of nearly 60% represents certainly a substantial improvement on historical uh, data. Now, of course, one of the key questions here is how does pertubrutinib efficacy stand up in different subgroups? Here are two examples of some small um, subgroups according to Key67 and TP53 status, suggesting that duration of response, progression-free survival, and overall survival looks to be relatively similar in these relatively small groups, um, whether patients do or don't have these high-risk biological and clinical features. As mentioned, there's an un, a BTK-naive treated cohort with high response rates that have been initially seen, and this has encouraged the development and the enrollment into the Bruin MCL321 trial. This is a superiority trial taking patients with mantle cell lymphoma who've received at least one prior line of therapy and randomizing patients between pertubrutinib and an investigator's choice covalent BTK inhibitor, either ibrutinib for patients enrolling in the UK and Europe, um, or acalabrutinib and zanabrutinib uh, for patients enrolling in the US based on approvals and availability. This is a study that's continuing to enroll and we await the results of this um, with great interest. So that's an overview of the uh, data that we've seen with pertubrutinib recently. Now, of course, safety is really important with these agents, and I'm going to hand back to Nirav, who's going to go through safety expectations for patients on covalent and non-covalent BTK inhibitors. Great, Toby. Uh, thank you so much for that information. Uh, here, we're going to focus more on the safety of different BTK inhibitors from trials in relapse refractory mantle cell lymphoma. So for the three covalent inhibitors, each had a pivotal uh, phase two single arm study that enrolled a significant number of patients. You can see here about approximately 100 in each cohort. And we know that there are certain types of toxicities that are affiliated with BTK inhibitors. And these things are uh, neutropenia, uh, bleeding or hemorrhage, and atrial fibrillation. And you can see that the second generation drugs uh, tended to have lower rates of some of these toxicities, uh, really the develop hence the development of these different generations of drugs to really uh, build on the efficacy uh, but reduce the toxicity seen with ibrutinib. So there has not been head-to-head -head trials in mantle cell lymphoma uh, with comparing one BTK inhibitor uh, to the other, other than the Bruin trial that uh, Toby just talked about, which is comparing non-covalent BTK inhibitors to covalent BTK inhibitors. And, and I look forward to seeing that data uh, when it becomes available. But there has been data from other cancer settings uh, looking at second-generation BTK inhibitors uh, versus ibrutinib, which was the original BTK. And so what can we learn from these other clinical trials? Well, there's the Elevate RR study, and, and we're not going to focus on efficacy, right? Because this is a conversation about BTK inhibitors and mantle cell lymphoma, but we can take away some information about safety. 
And so this was a head-to-head trial comparing A-caliber NIP to I-brute NIP. And uh, you can see here some of the secondary endpoints that they were focused on are those BTK-associated known toxicities. And, you know, you can see here lower rates of atrial fib, atrial flutter, lower rates of hypertension, and lower rates of bleeding complications. And that uh, this was seen even over a longer period of time. And in terms of discontinuation rates, the discontinuation rate was 14% with acalabrutinib and 21% with ibrutinib. And so this sort of shows that the biological development of the drug actually played out in a clinical trial with lower toxicity. But I would clarify, lower toxicity doesn't mean zero toxicity, and there were still patients that continued to have side effects to these covalent BTK inhibitors. Alpine was a study um, comparing xanabrutinib now, not acalabrutinib, to ibrutinib, also again in CLL. And, and a similar story can be told here. Uh, again, we see much lower rates of atrial fibrillation. Uh, perhaps the hypertension benefit and, and bleeding were not quite there, but the overall discontinuation rate was also lower with xanabrutinib-treated patients versus ibrutinib. And so... Uh, not really looking at efficacy, but we can learn a lot about safety by looking at patients from these other large clinical trials. Um, this is the Aspen study. Uh, again, this is going to be comparing patients with xanabrutinib to ibrutinib, but a different disease indication, looking at patients with Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. And so just having more patients treated on all these trials gives us more information that we can take away, at least from a safety standpoint. And again, here we see, you know, a, a, even a larger disparate benefit in atrial fibrillation and flutter that we saw uh, in the prior prior Alpine study, um, lower rates of hypertension and bleeding. Um, and again, you know, maybe a trade-off here with a little bit more neutropenia. Again, the overall discontinuation rate due to toxicities or adverse events was lower in those patients who were treated with xanabrutinib. So uh, what about pertubrutinib? So Toby went over some of that efficacy data, which I think is clearly very compelling, especially looking at those patients who were prior exposed to BTK inhibitors. But again, with the new drug, we really need to think about safety. Uh, how does a non-covalent BTK inhibitor look uh, compared to the covalent BTK inhibitors? And, and you look at the safety data, and I would say that overall, it was very encouraging. Um, very low rates of grade three or higher uh, traditional BTK type inhibitor toxicities. There was neutropenia seen um, in about 13% of patients here. And so uh, that was seen again in a heavily pretreated population. And we'll see more what those rates look like uh, in the Bruin MCL study, which will be comparing these drugs, which will mostly be given in a second light setting. But overall, I would say that the safety profile here was quite exciting and the drug was tolerated. Uh, relatively well. Uh, what about the cumulative incidence of uh, these toxicities over time? Um, again, you know, there was some hypertension seen, but it was mostly low grade. Uh, the rates of grade three or higher hy hypertension were quite low, uh, similar with bleeding. And the overall rates of atrial fibrillation and flutter, um, again, were quite low. I would note that the Bruin study in total enrolled more than 700 patients and so despite sort of being one clinical trial, with the number of patients being treated, there definitely is a safety signal that can be seen. And, and so this data really shows that the AE occurrence of these specific toxicities was low and didn't really change over time and, and with prolonged perturbrutinib exposure. 
this is a data set uh, looking at patients who had stopped a different BTK inhibitor, mostly covalent BTK inhibitors, as a result of toxicity. What happened to them when they got a non-covalent BTK inhibitor? Did they develop the same toxicities? Were they able to tolerate it? And you can see here that the majority of patients who stopped these covalent BTK inhibitors due to an adverse event, that when they went on a non-covalent inhibitor, that they did not have recurrence of that same event. And that's that dark blue part of this uh, bar graph here, um, which shows that those patients with cardiac disorders or atrial fibrillation, that most patients did not have recurrence. Uh, many patients who did have recurrence of toxicity often had a lower grade recurrence. And in fact, patients did not have to stop the sick the BTK, the non-covalent BTK inhibitor for the same adverse event that they had to stop the covalent BTK inhibitors, really suggesting that these drugs potentially have a different safety profile, uh, which is exciting as we try to improve uh, the safety efficacy profile of drugs for all of our patients moving forward. So um, what do we sum up about BTK inhibitors? Uh, overall, I personally find that they're very, very well tolerated drugs. And for most patients, um, they're going to be able to take these on a daily basis without significant complication. However, there are known toxicities. Some of those toxicities are cumulative over time and do warrant uh, education and awareness so that we can manage them appropriately. So if atrial fibrillation does occur, uh, think about uh, cardio-oncology referral. Think about uh, what form of anticoagulation. We generally don't like to give warfarin-based anticoagulation in these patients. Uh, do monitor your patients for hypertension and make sure that they're being managed by their primary care doctor and, and, and appropriately observed if they were to develop that complication. Uh, similarly, think about bleeding complications, bruising, especially if they're taking this concomitantly with other blood thinners. And then lastly, infection, secondary malignancies are considerations as well. So, you know, while these are really, really safe drugs and have provided great benefit to patients, they do require ongoing oncological care and monitoring to make sure that patients aren't dealing with the unwanted side effects seen uh, with these agents. So uh, before we move to our case discussion, I uh, wanted to share some thoughts on what does mantle cell management look and where the role of BTK inhibitor therapy is and may evolve over time. Let's take a look at this animation. What does the future look like for mantle cell lymphoma management? The likely goal of future therapy will be to follow a similar pathway to diseases like CLL and transition from chemotherapeutic induction regimens to novel targeted oral agents, which can provide durable efficacy and a favorable safety profile. Let's start specifically with patients with newly diagnosed mantle cell lymphoma. These patients are often separated by their clinical presentation. Patients who need less aggressive treatment induction may be candidates for therapy with a CD20 antibody or a BTK inhibitor. Chemoimmunotherapy will still have a role in the future, although combinations of covalent BTK inhibitors with other classes of drugs, such as lenalidomide or BCL2 inhibitors, may offer a chemotherapy-free approach. For those patients with more aggressive disease, chemoimmunotherapy may be indicated in combination with the BTK inhibitor. Other options may include different BTK inhibitor combinations or novel immunotherapeutics such as CAR T-cell therapy for certain patients with mantle cell lymphoma. What about second line? Second line therapy is dependent on what was given frontline. If a frontline covalent BTK inhibitor was not utilized, 
either a covalent or non-covalent BTK inhibitor, depending on the results of ongoing trials, may be useful. If a prior covalent BTK inhibitor was utilized, CAR T-cell therapy, a non-covalent BTK inhibitor, or the emerging class of bispecific T-cell engagers may be therapeutic options. In the third line or later setting, multiple tools will be available. This may be CAR-T therapy if the patient haven't been exposed to this modality before, or a non-covalent BTK inhibitor. Other options will include a CD3 by CD20 bispecific antibodies, which are currently under development. So I think we've had a really great discussion on BTK inhibitors, covalent uh, BTK inhibitors, non-covalent BTK inhibitors, and what does the safety profile look for all of these different drugs? Uh, now I'm excited to you know chit chat with Toby over here and go through some cases about how to integrate uh, some of the thoughts that we talked about uh, into real world cases and, and what the role of non-covalent BTK inhibitors uh, will be moving forward. So uh, I'm going to start with the first case, uh, and this is Margaret, 68 year old female patient. Uh, initially diagnosed with mantle cell in the setting of weight loss, uh, fatigue, enlarged spleen. Has a moderately elevated KI67, but no uh, TP53 aberration, and has an overall adequate performance status of score of 1. So uh, given current guidelines, uh, she was treated initially with bendamustine rituximab-based uh, induction treatment. Uh, she declined autologous stem cell transplant consolidation. Uh, reasonable given that she's a little bit older in age and doesn't have a perfect performance score. And, uh, you know, she did eventually relapse. And so we did a PET CT, we confirmed disease. Uh, usually we do go ahead and get a biopsy to confirm that this is still mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, and at this point, we started the patient on acalabrutinib, uh, which is sort of the second line standard of care here in the United States. Uh, one of the two BTK inhibitors we can use in this setting. These drugs, unfortunately, still have a time limit, and most patients will eventually progress. So she did progress after three years. So um, I'm going to ask Toby, what would you do in this situation? Uh, do you think about uh, getting resistance or mutational testing to drive your decision? Um, would you try a different covalent BTK inhibitor or re-expose? Um, what do you think? Yeah, all great questions. Um, I mean, I think the first, the first. The first question really is asking this um, issue around, for example, cis481 mutation status. Certainly, from the sort of CLL world, we know that there's sort of increasing interest in testing BTK-related mutation testing. Um, I would say in mental cell lymphoma, that's less well established, and um, from a mutational profile point of view, perhaps checking her p53 status might be valuable. We know that's an, uh, associated with an aggressive clinical course. But in terms of sort of resistance testing outside of, say, that, I wouldn't say there's any really established role. But I think potentially rebiopsying, looking at key 67 histopathological uh, subtyping and TP53 may be of value in terms of um, really getting a gauge for the pace at which her disease might behave. But having said that, in the third line setting in mantle cell lymphoma, it's very rare that patients follow an indolent disease course regardless. So I think uh, the jury's out slightly on that question. Um, in terms of re-exposure, well, there's no clinical data to really support that in a patient who's pro who has actually progressed through a covalent BTK inhibitor. Certainly the mantra across all 
of B-cell malignancies is patients who are resistant to covalent BTK inhibitors are considered resistant to that class of drugs, so be it ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, xanabrutinib. And actually, no, no company has really asked that question within clinical trials in those patients who stop because of progressive disease, um, do the other covalent BTK inhibitors work? So um, the, that's a slightly long answer to, the, to, to that question, which is really no. Um, I wouldn't be thinking about another covalent BTK inhibitor here. Yeah, you know, I have to say, I agree with you. My, my practice patterns are very similar to yours. I like to biopsy patients at progression. I think we can get other information, uh, but we're not routinely testing for any mutational resistance testing, uh, mainly because it doesn't really inform our clinical decisions um, at this time point. That may evolve, you know, over time if we learn uh, that different pathways can be inhibited by different drugs. And, and similar to you, um, I think that if you've been uh, progressed on one covalent BTK inhibitor, I don't really find a role for other covalent BTK inhibitors. So, uh, you know, moving on with this case then, you know, I, I guess, how do you think about non-covalent BTK inhibitors versus cell therapy? Uh, do you choose one over the other, Toby? Or how do you sort of make those decisions? And, and how does patient demographics, their age, uh, their duration of response to a prior BTK inhibitor, logistical issues, do those play a role in, in what you are able to offer your patients? Yeah, so I suppose this is the crux of this case, and I suppose riding a 72-year-old with a borderline performance status sort of maybe enhances some of the uncertainty about how best to manage somebody like this. So c clearly we know data um, from the Zuma 2 study, CAR T-cell data, uh, c compelling complete remission rates, um, really a, a very a durable disease control in many patients, but not without toxicity. So a third of patients getting grade three or greater neurological toxicity, a lot of patients developing CRS. And I think we're still learning about some of the long-term toxicities with CAR-T, um, cytopenias, infection, hypogammoglobulinemia, um, to name but a few. Um, so I think um, those uh, CAR-T cell therapy should be at least considered and discussed with the patient. Now, there are many other, um, I suppose, uh, barriers to that, or at least considerations um, uh, patients, uh, I suppose, um, social uh, setup, their ability to travel to a CAR-T center if they're not close to one, some of those other logistical considerations, the pace of manufacture and delivery of the CAR-T, um, and, and whether you can bridge somebody adequately to that in a safe fashion are all considerations. Um, and then I suppose the other main option is is, is pertubrusive. Now, we've seen, um, we've seen the safety data there um, clearly very different from CAR T. Um, the response rates uh, between fifty and sixty percent look look good, um, but aren't in the ninety percent range. So there's your trade-off really of discussions. Um, and I think in somebody who's seventy-five with um, some concerning, uh, well, at least performance status and, and clearly becoming more frail, I think I think those are key considerations when you're thinking about what to use. Um, in, in answer to the question about duration of response to the prior covalent BTK inhibitor, that's a very interesting question. Actually, a real um, absence of data there really to at least predict um, how patients might fare on a um, non-covalent BTK inhibitor, at least there. Um, and it's an interesting, certainly an interesting question. 
We do know that patients who progress on a covalent BTK inhibitor tend to be those with uh, early, tend to be those with high key 67, TP53, blastoid morphology. And actually, in some of the recent real world data that we've seen from the US, the high risk patients don't seem to be doing quite as well um, with CAR T cell therapy, which perhaps wasn't necessarily teased out from the initial Zuma 2 study. So I think there's certainly some open questions there. We maybe need to look at more patients with perturbrutinib or other non-covalent BTK inhibitors to answer that question in more detail. Um, but I think either are options, and it's really a discussion with the, the patient here um, uh, about those two, two main therapeutic options. And of course, one must always consider clinical trials. There are other active agents in development by specific antibodies, cell modulators, BCL2 inhibitors to name, but, but three classes of drugs. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think that you bring up a lot of really, really good points. I, I think this is the real world clinical scenario that that we face and what is the best thing to do for the patient. And I think it's a conversation with the patient about the risk and benefits. Do they have caregiver support to to get them through a therapy like CAR-T? And, and what is their quality of life goals? And CAR-T can be very effective, but, you know, uh, with the current treatment available, about a third of patients can have severe neurotoxicity. And, you know, if you're older, that can mean you know, disability, even after the hospitalization, maybe being at a subacute rehab. And, and so these are all trade-offs. And so I generally have a conversation with patients. I think uh, for this patient in particular, I might lean towards sort of starting with pertubrutinib, uh, assessing their disease response early. And, and if they're one of those patients that quickly gets into a complete remission, you know, perhaps writing it out and, and thinking about how quickly the, the field of mantle cell is evolving that we might get, you know, maybe less toxic therapies available in a year or two uh, down the road. Uh, that being said, I have, you know, sort of individually taken older patients, younger patients uh, to different treatments based on their preference and and how aggressive they also want to be uh, with this cancer. So uh, I think this is a really good case because it's a challenge I think that we face um, in the clinic, but I guess it's a good challenge because we have more than one option available. So, uh, you know, to sort of recap this case here. Uh, you know, BTK resistance is likely present. So I think me and Toby both agreed that we wouldn't use covalent BTK inhibitors. Uh, Pertubrutinib is approved, at least in the United States. Sorry, Toby, I'm sure you look forward to having this drug available in, in, in United Kingdom. And uh, CAR-T is an option, but I think we have to always be mindful about what that safety profile looks uh, like in an older patient. Any final thoughts here, Toby? Um, I, I just really, to, to, to reiterate your point that you made about early response to pertubrutinib, certainly my experience in, in the clinical trial has been that if you see response, you see it early. And um, similarly, if patients don't respond, it's generally very clear quite quite early. And, so you, and those who do respond, actually, the, one of the striking things about pertubrutinib um, in mantle cell lymphoma is the duration of response looks really very good. Um, so you, you'll get your answer pretty early on when you when you try it. And, th and that can be quite valuable in decision-making subsequently. Yeah. So I, I sort of had started doing that in the real real world setting outside of the clinical trial is early disease assessment and then let their let their disease guide my decision-making. And, and then it's pretty easy to say that, hey, you know, the risk of CAR-T is worth it now that you failed a non-covalent and a covalent BTK inhibitor. So I'm uh, going to just change this case just slightly. Uh, you know, if the patient had received sort of a covalent BTK inhibitor up front, 
you know, in a fixed duration setting or this, I guess this was Ibrutinib plus BR shine approach, continuous Ibrutinib until progression. Uh, I guess I, I'm assuming it wouldn't change anything for you, right, Toby, because it sort of progressed on Ibrutinib. Yeah, so um, I guess uh, the scenario is similar in some respects in that covalent BTK inhibitor resistance is present. And so reusing a covalent BTK inhibitor is um, not an option. I suppose it's different here in that basically you're saying patients had CD20 chemotherapy and a BTK all in line one. And then if you look, for example, at the FDA approval for CAR-T and um, pertubrutinib, actually they need to, uh, for at least... um, the the non-covalent BTK inhibitor need to need to be third line and beyond. Whereas um I think I'm right in saying that actually CAR T has a broader relapsed refractory license. And so interestingly in someone like this who's 72, you could in theory consider CAR T first and then save perturbrutinib till third line if you need it. So I, I think that would be the discussion I would I would have here. Of course, the same process of pros and cons need to be discussed about CAR-T versus other options. In theory, you could give something like RCHOP second line and then third line uh, pertubrutinib and fourth line CAR-T or something like that. You you could go down that route if, if CAR-T wasn't considered appropriate then. But um, but in, in theory, in theory, a brexicaptogene is, is available second line, I think, for these patients. Uh, interestingly, in Europe, Brexicaptogene is only available third line and beyond um, at present, so slightly different in Europe. And we are waiting to hear about pertubrutinib from a, from a European perspective. But um, certainly in the US, um, CAR T second line I think is an option here. Yeah, clearly approvals make a difference when we think about what uh, what drug to use. Uh, you know, I think you could maybe argue they've seen two classes of drugs here, and if you really wanted to do pertubrutinib, there are often ways to get it available. Uh, but CAR-T, you're right, does have a pretty broad label here in the United States. And so uh, this patient is sort of younger now because they got everything together and, uh, you know, progressed uh, quicker than they did in the first scenario. So, uh, you know, I think this is the same discussion here about risk benefits. Uh, maybe approval status makes a decision for us in this setting and we have to offer uh, something like CAR-T. But, you know, what I do with my patients is really talk about the risk and benefits and, you know, we're now seeing, you know, in long-term follow-up of CAR-T that actually more and more patients are relapsing. So I, I no longer necessarily tell people that CAR-T is a one-and-done treatment. Uh, reality is, is if patients continue to live, um, they'll probably get both, right? You know, in the setting of relapsing from one and then getting the other option. Yeah, agreed. Great. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to hand this second case off to you, Toby, to, to, to get to walk us through. Great, thank you. So um, case two is a BTK-naive patient with relapsed refractory mental cell lymphoma. So this is uh, Kevin. He's a 63-year-old male. And he's diagnosed with mental cell lymphoma. He's got some high-risk features, a high key 67 a TP53 mutation on next-generation sequencing, and some comorbidities as listed there, hypertension, atrial fibrillation, and a performance status of 1. And in the frontline setting, he um, receives... Uh, a combination of bendamustin rituximab followed by um, rituximab cytarabin. So um, that's a sort of alternating regime um, with cytarabin, bendamustin, rituximab, and he has a remission of five years, retains a good performance status, but then progresses, so moves into the second line setting. And so 
Um, there are some questions here around BTK choice. So he's clearly got some cardiac comorbidities. So we've discussed the fact BTK inhibitors are generally used in the second line setting. So some questions for you, Nirav. Um, given his cardiac history, which covalent BTK inhibitor would you use here? Um, is there a, a more selective one to consider? And then a separate question, I suppose, would you ever consider pertubrutinib here? And where do you see pertubrutinib's role perhaps in the future in this setting? Yeah, I think it's a great question. To, you know, it's interesting, right? You know, we talked about that sort of regulatory approval status. It's sort of different between here uh, in the United States and Europe. And in the United States, you know, I brewed it, sort of that approval was uh, withdrawn. And so for me, I would choose a second generation because of this history of atrial fibrillation. Uh, that's also the only option we have, right? Uh, to, to be able to administer at least on an FDA label. So we saw in the data that was presented earlier, low rates of atrial fibrillation. And so uh, how to choose between acalabrutinib and zatabrutinib, I, I don't know what to tell you. They've never really been tested head to head. I don't think they'll ever be tested head to head. And so I think either one of those would be uh, a reasonable consideration. Um, and and I would choose that over ibrutinib, even if it were available uh, in the United States at this time. Uh, what about pertubrutinib? Well, I, I think that uh, it would not be approved in this setting, uh, mainly because a patient is BTK inhibitor naive. Now, if they were to start a xanabrutinib or acalabrutinib, uh, yeah, and they had atrial fibrillation as a complication, then I would say that they've been exposed to this drug class and I would offer pertubrutinib. And we saw that data that those patients who did stop um, a covalent BTK inhibitor because of cardiac issues, that the majority of them were actually able to go on pertubrutinib um, and not get recurrence. So I think that pertubrutinib has a place here, but probably after covalent BTK inhibitors. But that may evolve, you know, based on the Bruin MCL study that you talked about, Toby, right? And if that shows that a non-covalent inhibitor is better and safer, uh, we may be altering our, our treatment patterns. Yeah, that's so uh, the MCL321 is clearly the key answer to that third question, isn't it? And yeah, it's interesting how um, the access to covalent BTK inhibitors sort of d diverged um, across the the Atlantic. Really, um, we, we've seen a, a real a real shift in 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 recent times in that regard. Um, so, uh, just as a recap, really, for this case, so although um, cardiovascular risk factors are present, that the selective covalent BTK inhibitors certainly are, are reasonable, and there's good experience with particularly second-generation BTK inhibitors being being safe in patients uh, such as this. Um, the evidence really supporting uh, uh, pertubrutinib in, in covalent BTK-naive patients is relatively limited, but I described some of those patients from the Bruin study, but it's not approved in patients who are covalent BTK-naive, and so the MCL321, as mentioned, the, the ongoing clinical trial will be key um, in terms of seeing uh, where pertubrutin moves in terms of the the treatment landscape moving forward. Um, great. So um, let's just continue this case. So um, Kevin Kevin receives um, zanabrutin. Um, he has an early treatment response, but after um, after he has initially responded, he has to interrupt treatment after six months due to neutropenia, which is a relatively common side effect seen with zanabrutin. And 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 this is despite interventions, GCSF and so forth. Now, um, Nirav, we've got a patient who's responded to Zanabrutinib, but you're, you're, he's developing some potentially concerning toxicities. Um, 
firstly, what do you think you might do? How might you optimize the toxicities here with Xanabrucib? Uh, and at what point do you think you'd consider switching? And if you did switch, uh, would you switch to an alternative covalent BTK inhibitor or consider switching to a non-covalent BTK inhibitor, so pertubrucid? Be interested in your thoughts. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I, th I think in terms of xanabrutinib and acalabrutinib and all these BTK inhibitors, um, you could try dose reductions here. Uh, you can do prophylaxis with GCSF. It sounds like some of these things, right, in interventions occurred and, and the patient continued to have this problem. And, and we don't want to put these patients at risk of ongoing infection, right, sepsis, pneumonia, uh, the things that, that can actually hurt patients. So I, I would think about, you know, switching due to an intolerance issue. You know, I, part of this might be my experience with the Bruin study. I was, a, you know, enrolled quite a few patients on that trial. And so I actually would uh, consider pertubrutinib um, as a switch option here mainly because it has that different mechanism of action uh, and as a drug has a clean profile. And so, you know, really a few off-target uh, sort of inhibitions. And so I would try that as an option. That being said, I think it's also very reasonable to consider switching to acalabrutinib here, right? Because we're not talking about resistance, right? Um, we're seeing early response. There's no sign that the patient is failing covalent inhibitor. Uh, so I think really either one is a reasonable consideration. Uh, and perhaps, right, bias when we work with drugs, you know, um, as part of clinical trials and we get experience with them ahead of time, uh, I think that I would consider a non-covalent BTK inhibitor in the setting. But kind of curious what, what you would do. Yeah. Uh, again, assuming all drugs were available, yeah, yeah. right? Well, exactly. Well, I mean, I think the first thing I'd say is if you look at all the intolerance data and there's data actually with intolerance, so switching covalent BTK inhibitors and non-covalent, the vast majority of patients that develop toxicity in studies um, where a calabrucin, Xanu, or Vitabrucin was used subsequently. Actually, the vast majority of those patients who stopped due to intolerance stopped because of intolerance to ibrutinib. So we have really very little data on, for example, switching BTK inhibitors where you use Xanabrucin first. There's a very small number of patients that receive Xanu after a cala. Um, but the other way around, I think there's really very little. But I think pragmatically, absolutely, um, either of those two options would be reasonable. I suppose the argument of staying within class, so staying with the covalent BTK inhibitor class, you sort of know where you stand with the use of covalent BTK inhibitors, i.e., you know, <clears throat> you probably, if you use pertubrutinib next, you may not go back to a covalent BTK inhibitor. Um, at least there's a very big sort of open question about whether there'd be efficacy subsequently. So I... I might be tempted to use acalabrucinib purely because I think I'd know where I stood, not necessarily due to efficacy. And I think the data of intolerance um, to covalent BTK inhibitors followed by pertubrutinib, the, the data is compelling. Um, but I think I might switch to acala because neutropenia is less of an issue. Um, but having said that, the data set with pertubrutinib is large and convincing. So yeah, I think either are options, but... Um, Staying within class, to me, just, just provides some clarity of where I stand with all of these agents. Um, yeah, but a very tricky case. I mean, uh, fortunately, it doesn't happen. But I think it's good, right, that we're not agreeing on everything because it shows that these are complex situations, right, where the data aren't clear. Uh, as you said, that data is just not available. Um, everything we have is really with ibrutinib. Yeah, and one of the things is because of the timelines of development. There actually haven't been lots of patients receiving xanabrutinib routinely that have developed intolerance that could, that could then even be enrolled in clinical trials. So the, the, this is a pretty evidence-free um, space answering this question. 
Okay, so just um, just assuming the patient started on pertuberitib. So Nirav, you said you would do this. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Patient, say, what are the recommended um, interventions should the uh, toxicity occur, for example, on pertuberitib? We did see some patients in that data set you described developing recurrence of toxicity more often than not lower levels, but let's assume they develop recurrent neutropenia. Um, what what might you do with pertuberitib? What's your experience with neutropenia and pertuberitib? Um, it, it does occur um, with that agent. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, you know, again, I think mantle cell patients are different, right? This patient got bendamustine, got cytarabine. Uh, they're older, their bone marrow reserve might not be the same. And so uh, definitely we saw neutropenia. Uh, in general, I try to maintain the dose and um, I generally support them with growth factor, and that usually ameliorates the situation. Uh, I also find that the neutropenia with all of these BTK inhibitors as a class is sort of worse in the first few months. And, and I sort of find that over time, whether that's the body adjusting to it or, or sort of the immune system adjusting to this, that it becomes less of the problem down the road. Uh, beyond that, I mean, there are dose reductions that can be made, interruptions that can be made. I always advise people with new drugs to refer to the package insert, right? Um, to get some of the guidance, you know, from the company that they learned through the clinical trials. Uh, but but again, you know, if it continues to be a problem, I would try some of those mitigation efforts. Yeah, and certainly we've seen from the Bruin trial, actually, if you look at the whole safety cohort, very few patients stopping because of toxicity or even needing to dose, dose reduce. And I suppose you do tend to see it early on if the disease is causing marrow infiltration. And certainly in the Bruin study, as you, as you mentioned, very heavily pretreated patients um, so perhaps neutropenia will be less of an issue if the agent is brought further forward. So just as a recap, the current data support um, sequential use of alter alternative second-generation covalent BTK inhibitors. Um, there is uh, data also supporting use of non-covalent agents such as pertuberitinib in BTK-intolerant patients. And of course, we didn't discuss this much predominantly really a demonstration of the activity of BTK inhibitors that we really didn't talk about, lenalidomide and, and uh, venetoclax and so forth here. But I suppose other agents are an option, potentially if you have very concerning BTK-related toxicity, such as major hemorrhage, for example, fortunately very uncommon. Um, and just, uh, I will pass over to Nirav um, to uh, finish. Well, great, Toby. Those are great cases. I, I always enjoy my conversations with you and talking about how we would uh, manage complex mantle cell lymphoma cases. Uh, but to wrap up here, uh, covalent BTK inhibitors are the established treatment for relapsed mantle cell. Uh, we're starting to use them as part of frontline uh, therapy. There's now data from Triangle. Uh, clearly, they are the established treatment in the second line setting. And then later, if you haven't had prior exposure, uh, unfortunately, BTK inhibitors are at the end of mantle cell uh, in terms of the story for most patients. And so over time, resistance will occur in the majority of patients. And, and so there are new generation of BTK inhibitors. And then this class called non-covalent BTK inhibitors is really the first time we've seen sequential treatment with BTK inhibitors being effective, uh, that a non-covalent could actually work after progression on a covalent BTK inhibitor. And so we saw this uh, drug and reviewed the data, which Toby did very nicely, showing the activity um, of this drug in, in the setting of resistance and intolerance. Uh, and showing that, you know, there might even be some data emerging for pertubrutinib in the BTK naive setting, although uh, I would wait for that head-to-head -head clinical trial to mature uh, before uh, using that as my first option, uh, given the well-established role of covalent BTK inhibitors.
Well, uh, thank you, everyone. We're going to wrap up here with a couple of questions uh, that were submitted as part of this uh, conference platform here. And uh, I'm going to uh, toss a question here to Toby here um, about BTKA mutations and resistance. Uh, there's some emerging data, Toby, coming out about mutation uh, mutations occurring in those patients who are actually exposed to non-covalent BTK inhibitors like pertubrutinib. Uh, what's your impression of that data, and, and how does it affect uh, the landscape of other BTK inhibitors such as covalent inhibitors? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think at the, the overriding theme here is we're still learning a lot about um, uh, the pattern of uh, BTK resistance and BTK mutations in patients who've been exposed to non-covalent BTK inhibitors and covalent BTK inhibitors. The, the data that exists at the moment really is predominantly from CLL, um, clearly much easier to test and assess given the circulating disease. Um, and nearly all patients have been exposed to both a covalent and a non-covalent VTK inhibitor. Um, and interestingly, you see patients who respond to pertubrutinib, the um, mutations that are typically associated with resistance to, to the prior covalent VTK inhibitor, they tend to fall away. And then at resistance, you tend to see novel BTK mutations in the non-kinase domain. So those those mutations in a in a in a in a different domain um, in BTK. Um, and also the story isn't hugely clean. There's quite a proportion of patients where you don't find a mutation at all in BTK. So I think we've got a lot to still understand, and very little data exists, um, if at all, in patients who progress on a non-covalent BTK and who who have never been exposed to a covalent BTK. And in terms of sequencing of therapy, um, in the future, that will be really key to see, well, can you use the agents the other way around? Do you, do, you, do, you, do you see sort of a similar pattern, but vice versa? And that will be very interesting and important, certainly. Um, now, Nirav, there's a, there's a very interesting question coming on CAR-T use with uh, BTK inhibitors. What are your thoughts on using them together, both clearly very active modalities of therapy? Can you use them earlier on in therapy, particularly in high-risk patients or in a broader group of patients? There's been a bit of data um, looking at this. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So, you know, there was some initial data that looked at, you know, ibrutinib and its ability to inhibit ITK and whether or not that can actually improve the CAR T-cell profile. Uh, more so, right, BTK inhibitors might be a good way to stabilize disease. And, and so I think disease that is stable or at least maybe somewhat controlled might be easier for therapies like CAR-T to be more effective. And so uh, I do think there's a role for combining these therapies. In general, BTK inhibitors are well tolerated. And if they can put you in a better position uh, to go through the CAR-T cell therapy, then maybe you can make that process safer, milder, and, and potentially more effective. Uh, the other thing I would say is that there's a group of patients out there where I think uh, really CAR-T should be used up earlier or should be available earlier. Those are P53 mutation patients, blastoid patients, where we sort of know, yes, BTK inhibitors work, uh, but they definitely don't work uh, for a long period of time. And so those are patients where a bridging strategy with BTK and a plan to combine with CAR-T, uh, I think would be an approach that I would be excited about and, and hope that that gets evaluated in a clinical trial setting so we can really learn more about that. Yeah, there's certainly very high-risk patients who gain really no durable benefit from frontline immunochemotherapy, where you can see this kind of combination being highly attractive. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, Toby, thank you for your time. Always a pleasure to have a conversation with you on mantle cell lymphoma.
Yeah, thank you. And thank you for the invitation. Great to be here. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GYD 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.